So welcome to our event today on Europe at a Crossroad, um, how to achieve efficient economic governance in the euro area. It is a difficult and sad day today in Brussels with um, the, uh, the uh, attacks um, that happened at uh, the airport and uh, here downtown, very close to our offices, which is why we have cancelled the event. But um, the governor um, of the Banque de France, François Villeroy, uh, was kind enough to um, agree to, to still speak um, and record that speech, and we will live stream that speech. So it is a great pleasure and honor for us uh, today uh, to, to have you here, uh, uh, Francois, to, uh, to give um, your keynote speech um, on uh, how you see Europe uh, going forward. Um, you were planning and you asked, you will talk about European economic governance, uh, but of course um, the events today I think uh, should strengthen, um, I hope, a, a spirit of solidarity also among, among European countries because of course it's something that affects us all. Uh, not just uh, Brussels, we had the attacks in Paris and elsewhere. So um, uh, I think um, without much further further ado, um, let me again uh, thank you um, for, for coming and for, for speaking today at our offices. And we will live stream this event and, and, and publicize, uh, of course, um, uh, the speech. Thank you, Guntram. Uh, I first want to express my deep solidarity as a French citizen and as a European to Belgium and to our Belgian friends. You just said it, European solidarity must be obviously one of our strong answers to these awful attacks. And beyond this tragical event, all of us probably agree that there is one economic necessity. The Euro area needs to rethink its economic governance. Progress is badly needed, although progress, we know it, is very difficult to achieve in a climate of growing Euroscepticism. I want to pay tribute to Helmut Schmidt, one of the greatest Europeans. He said it clearly in Frankfurt in October 2011. I quote, there was a failure to set the economic rules of the game for the currency union. A powerful authority with responsibility for fiscal and economic policy was not set up. In that spirit, I speak today as a committed European and a contributor to MU since its outset. I was in Maastricht 25 years ago as well as a member of the ECB Governing Council. Some of the ideas I will elaborate upon were put forward in my February joint paper with Jens Weidmann. Even though what I will say today does not necessarily represent his views or those of other colleagues of the ECB, or naturally those of the French government. While such ideas to enhance economic governance are not all new, their implementation is tricky. This will be the main thrust of my speech. Shifting from ideas to action is urgent if central banking is not to remain the only game in town. For this reason, notably, central bankers can legitimately 
contribute to the debate. Yet, taking action will obviously be a decision of political leaders. This issue has already generated many prominent contributions. For instance, Jean-Claude Trichet in 2011 advocated the need for a European finance minister. Mario Draghi called in early 15 for a quantum leap in European integration and institutional convergence. Also, I cannot quote all contributors, Bruegel has also promoted a European fiscal capacity and a stronger coordination of economic policies, along with Jean Pisani-Ferry and many others. You can see it on the slide. Last year, the five presidents' report, followed by the MU PAC of the European Commission, reflected a more consensual view of how to deepen and strengthen MU with two different horizons, the short term and the long term, recognizing that the latter may require a revision of the treaty. How to reform the euro area economic governance is the subject of a loaded but much needed debate requiring some principal choice, and this will be my first part. <clears throat> Among these choices, I will elaborate on the priority towards what I call a full coordination of national economic policies and the subsequent need for a strong Euro finance minister with very concrete tasks I will specify today, and this will be my second part. Let me first summarize the loaded debate we must have and some fundamental principle choices we need to make. This debate is indeed loaded because at least three fault lines. First, in the relationship between the euro area and the rest of the European Union. Deepening integration across both perimeters at the same time let alone at the same pace, is not warranted. This raises the prospect of a multi-speed Europe, especially at a time when EU membership could become a reversible matter. We shouldn't fear different speeds. In clearer terms, whatever the limitations of the February Brussels agreement, I am strongly in favor of the UK remaining within the EU. Yet, irrespective of the outcome of the British referendum, the Eurozone can and should pursue further integration. Second fault line, tensions and heterogeneity within the Euro area, especially between the so-called core and periphery. They have been exacerbated by the crisis, so that the prospect of risk sharing may be perceived as resulting in permanent transfers across economies. Pulling risks would thus be seen as involving moral hazard, with permanent suspicion of free rider behavior. Yet, we must realize that heterogeneity across countries calls for reinforced corporations based both on risk reduction together with risk sharing.
Resolving the tension between solidarity and responsibility is the only way forward. Last fourth line, on the crucial issue of economic governance, France and Germany have not always seen eye to eye. In Germany, economic government, as advocated by the former French finance minister Pierre Bérégovoy in the early 90s, was originally seen as a threat to ECB independence and is now viewed as a new trick to avoid implementing domestic reforms. To be fair, the French call for Germany to support coordination and the German doubts about French reforms are both well-founded. A weak outcome would be in consequence that nothing would happen before the French and German elections of 2017. But even in this case, 2016 can and must be a year of intense preparation. Despite these three fault lines, let me stress now why this remains a necessary debate and why we must make the economic case. We know that there is deep political resistance to sharing fiscal resources and sovereignty, as well as Euroscepticism. The sad example of the refugee crisis illustrates how European countries have so far displayed little solidarity in finding a common solution. This is why we need the economic case to be made. If we are to promote a stronger governance of the Eurozone, it cannot be a purely institutional case out of a blind belief in ever closer integration. It is not a theological issue and not solely a political one either. It is a very concrete tool to achieve the full economic potential of the Euro area. We must strive to reach such an agreement for the good of the citizens of Europe. It has to be grounded in candid economic analysis and empirical evidence. Let me put it with very simple words. This discussion is not about more Brussels. It is about more growth and more jobs in Europe. Clearly, monetary policy cannot be a substitute for economic policy coordination or the lack of reforms. The ECB has worked extremely hard to fulfill its mandate, yet there are economic and even political risks to overburdening monetary policy. These are risks to financial stability, to the proper functioning of credit channels, and to central bank independence, as enshrined in the treaties. For that reason alone, central bankers need to take part in this debate. The way we have handled the crisis has shown, unfortunately, how unprepared and uncoordinated we were. Not only did this episode affect our credibility, it also revealed the economic cost of non-coordination in terms of prevention and management of crisis, both at the national and collective level. 
At the national level, member states have been lacking the capacity to mitigate large shocks in the MU context. The non-binding nature of economic policy coordination, as set out in the Lisbon strategy or the Agenda 2020, is partly to blame. Some member states also prove to be poorly committed to implementing domestic structural and fiscal reforms that would have created more policy space to address shocks. Collectively, the expected dynamics between peer pressure and market discipline did not work. Let us see it. As markets did not believe in the no bailout principle and as national authorities did not really accept peer pressure or the implementation of the rules, we can see it on this slide, seven years after the crisis, we still have about 50% of the member states under excessive deficit procedure. So the absence of coordination has a genuine economic cost. Several studies have estimated it for the Eurozone. It includes the cost of crisis and assistance programs, as well as the impact on growth due to uneven compliance with budgetary rules before the crisis and rigidity of the rules during the crisis. Let me show and mention a few numbers. Banking and fiscal crisis can be extremely costly. Relative to the US growth trajectory, the Eurozone has fallen behind by 5% of GDP per capita since 2011. Both the European Commission and the British NIESR have shown the large impact of simultaneous fiscal consolidation in Europe, with around 2% larger GDP declines due to intra-EA spillovers. Optimal policy coordination in the euro area would have required differentiated consolidation efforts in line with available fiscal space. A final illustration relates to asymmetric adjustment driven by current account imbalances at the country level at the beginning of the crisis, which are contributing to the large external surplus at the euro area level today. A surplus of more than 3% of GDP for an economic area as a whole, which still has a negative output of minus 2.3%, is clearly suboptimal. In sum, all these figures point to a significant cost of non-coordination of at least 2% of the Eurozone GDP at present. But to take the debate forward, three principal choices have to be made according to me. First principle, we do not have to choose between coordinating economic policies on the one hand and implementing domestic reforms on the other end. And this is a cornerstone of any French-German agreement, breaking the political gridlock of coordination versus reforms and making parallel progress on both domestic reforms and European coordination.
This requires clearly overcoming distrust and putting both aspects under the same umbrella, namely a common institution. Second principle, institutions with a mandate are superior to rules without institutions. To bolster policy consistency and coordination, we admittedly need simpler rules. For instance, the reforms of the Stability and Growth Pact, SGP, and the so-called Fiscal Compact have been a progress. But their complexity is such that finance ministers privately admit they do not know completely whether their country is abiding by the rules. Furthermore, we learned in real life that we cannot simply rely on rules. They should be supported by strong institutions. With discretionary powers, Mario Raghi pointed out the fundamental difference between a monetary policy institution and fiscal rules, which are exemplified by the track records of the ECB and SGP, respectively. Third principle, and I will insist a bit more on it, there is room for an intermediate level of integration, which I would call full coordination of national policies. It is a presently missing link between integration, like we have for monetary policy decision-making, and rule-based surveillance, such as is currently the case for national fiscal policies. Well, I illustrated this on the matrix you can see, which is obtained by comparing the four components of economic policy, monetary, financial, fiscal, structural in columns, with the three levels of integration in rows, namely the lowest level of monitored national policies, we shouldn't say this. Uh, the lowest level of monitored national policies with recommendations, the intermediate level of fully coordinated national policies with incentives, and the upper level of integrated policy with common instruments. The four components of economic policy displayed here are quite distinct, but they all contribute to the same objective, to boost growth, but also to smooth shocks. Say classification on the matrix is organized more or less from left to right in terms on, on, of the effects on stabilization versus allocation. In other words, of the cyclical versus structural effects. I do not need to speak on monetary policy, which is integrated. As a complement to monetary union, economic union can be seen as a combination of three main policy instruments, financial, fiscal, and structural. All three policy dimensions, indeed, have two, a supply side impact on resource allocation, to a growing extent, going right. I will not elaborate much further today on the financial dimension of MU. The banking union, when completed, has the potential 
to move up to the highest level of institutional integration. Similarly, the Juncker Plan is a useful integrated instrument, although too weak and slow at present. I have stressed elsewhere the need for and the benefits of moving ahead with a much stronger financing and investment union, incorporating these steps forward and going well beyond the proposed capital market union. But rather today, I prefer to focus on the fiscal and structural policy dimensions of MU. In practice, our fiscal framework has been implemented as a fairly weak monitoring framework. Likewise, on the structural front, the MIP, Macroeconomic Imbalance Procedure, is clearly lacking teeth. An institution is clearly missing to develop a mandatory and hence full coordination of national policies. To be sure, the highest level of policy integration would logically involve building a genuine fiscal union as well and completing the single market. But that would surely require more ex-ante convergence and resolution of legacies from the past. My view is that we should leave this door open to further integrations for countries that are willing and ready to consider it. I will come back to it, but first, I would like to highlight what I consider to be the most urgently needed part of MU reform, namely how to set up a strong institution to fully coordinate national fiscal and structural policies. And here I come to my second part. This institution is what would enable us to achieve the second level of integration, i.e. full coordination of national policies. In economic terms, it would help internalize negative externalities, e.g. demand spillovers or financial contagion, from asymmetric economic shocks across countries, as well as optimize positive externalities between fiscal and structural policies. In political terms, it would help make the euro area more than the sum of its parts. Jean Monnet famously declared that nothing is possible without men, but nothing lasts without institutions. So we need establishing a strong institution led by a euro area finance minister. The idea is not new, but today I would like to elaborate further on his role. So first, let me describe concretely the mandate and the shared strategy, then the tasks of a Euro finance minister, and last, the way to anchor its legitimacy and capacity. Which mandate and what strategy? The Commission has already introduced a two-stage European semester so that the discussion of the outlook for the Eurozone precedes country-by-country -country analysis. We must take this further. 
The mandate of this decision-making institution must be to achieve the strongest sustainable and balanced growth. To fulfill the mandate, this institution, in particular the Eurofinance Minister at the head, would be tasked to outline what I call the collective strategy. It would be essential for the euro area to collectively agree on overall economic policy objectives and on the division of tasks through the setting of focused individual performance targets for member states. Such an agreement could be reached by a process following more or less the European semester calendar. A preparation phase would provide the macro framework and take on board individual country contributions, as well as the expertise from the fiscal and competitiveness councils. This phase would require assessing first potential growth with a quantified ambition to raise it. I recall that we are only at 1.2% of potential growth at present in the Eurozone. Second, the Euro area output gap and employment, taking into account limited cross-border labour mobility. Third, the sustainable fiscal and external positions for the Eurozone as a whole, as well as the sustainable distribution of these positions across countries. There is some similarity to what the G20 has been aiming to achieve with its framework for growth, a process through which countries identify shared objectives. Although we can and must obviously be more ambition for the euro area. In a decision phase, then, the euro finance minister would propose a strategy consisting of the collective objective and, as far as necessary, its country-specific translations in terms of reforms and policy stance. This proposal would be subject to formal opinions from the Fiscal and Competitiveness Councils. It would then have to be adopted at simple majority by the Eurogroup and further to be endorsed by the European Parliament. In case of a stalemate, it would be up for the heads of states and governments, the European Council in a Euro format, to adopt the collective strategy on the basis of an adapted proposal by the Euro Finance Minister. We should, of course, bear in mind the rationale for subsidiarity. Euro area outcomes will remain dependent on national policies. Many areas of policy making and all implementation will remain decentralized. Yet, full coordination will require that economic policy stance and spillovers be collectively agreed upon and that member states work consistently to achieve the common objectives. Which tasks for a Euro finance minister? I see four tasks according to the mandate I just explained. First, the minister would be in charge of 
preparing the euro area-wide collective strategy to fulfill the mandate as I already described. Second, the finance minister would be responsible for supervising the implementation of policy objectives and institutional discipline, using adequate instruments to provide symmetric incentives. Negative incentives would, of course, include the effective implementation of existing sanction mechanisms. They could be broadened in contractual procedures. Already put forward, and this was not much noted, in the 2013 Franco-German contribution on MU, or in Chancellor Merkel's binding reform contracts proposal, but including also positive incentives. One of them would be the access to a Euro Area Convergence Fund through which member states could benefit from common funding once they have established a track record and convincingly avoided moral hazard. In addition, making the participation in economic governance of the Eurozone conditional on compliant implementation could provide strong incentives. Third, the finance minister would be responsible for implementing centralized crisis management. This specific, the specific features of the ESM, European Stability Mechanism, set up shed light on inherent euro area limitations. As member states decided solidarity would not be part of the usual governance system. As a result, CSM is grounded in an intergovernmental treaty. A finance minister for the euro area would naturally be in charge of overseeing ESM operations. Crisis management methods themselves could surely better integrate debt sustainability, liquidity support, and financial stability, some weak points recently underlined by the IMF. Last, while moving towards further integration, the minister could be given the authority for managing a euro area convergence fund evolving towards a euro budget. We are touching here on the issue of a common fiscal capacity, promoted recently by Pierre-Carlo Padoan or Benoit Curé. I think it reasonable as successfully done in the past, to build it in three stages. In the first stage, member states would be free to join and the convergence fund would be allocated to financing common goods such as European infrastructure investment or refugee settlement. In the second stage, that would represent a significant step up this budget could become a stabilization instrument, centralizing a well-defined set of policy instruments, such as a European layer of unemployment insurance, as proposed, among others, by Bruegel. The third and final stage of fiscal integration would only be achieved if agreement can be found on financing, direct revenue raising capacity, and common debt 
insurance, the famous step of the Eurobonds, and agreement on the desirable level of business cycle synchronization. How could we set up this legitimate institution with a genuine administrative capacity? Further integration and democratic accountability should progress together, as discussed in my recent article with Jens Weidmann. We need to enable the European Economic Administration to be more efficient while establishing strong enough political legitimacy to ensure balance between liability and control. A European Treasury headed by a Euro finance minister would have a chance of embodying such a delicate undertaking. These institutional changes obviously require a new treaty notwithstanding the low-hanging fruits we can and must pick up in the coming year. First, we need a legitimacy-enhancing appointment process. The finance minister could thus be appointed for a five-year period by the European Council, acting by qualified majority, on a proposal from the President of the European, of the European Commission. The new appointment would be subject to the formal approval of the European Parliament and the Finance Minister would be member of the Commission as well as chair of the Eurogroup. The Minister would thereby have the legitimacy to represent internationally the Euro area in economic and financial fora alongside with the President of the ECB. Second, the Euro finance minister would need to be backed by a genuine treasury administration, which could include staff from the Commission's Economic and Finance Financial Directorate General, ECFIN, the ESM, and the Economic and Financial Committee Secretariat. Such a powerful civil service would also benefit from the public advice of two independent bodies the European Fiscal Board and the Competitiveness Council. Last and not least, if we succeed in implementing further integration, we will need stronger democratic control over Eurozone affairs. To this end, we will need to consider institutionalizing a Eurozone format of the European Parliament. Relationships between Eurozone MPs and national parliaments will also need to be enhanced through an inter-institutional agreement or by creating dedicated commissions. To conclude, let me quote Robert Mandel. We all know he was the father of the theory of optimal currency areas, and he did acknowledge that the euro area was far from optimal. Yet, he remained confident, and this quotation is not very known. Robert Mandel said about the MU, it will be achieved because for Europe, it is not just the best game in town, it is the only game. Economic policy as a whole not central banking alone, is indeed the only game in town. Of course, 
we always face the risk of failure when conducting fair-reaching reforms. Yet, we cannot afford another missed opportunity, and we have to act swiftly without losing a longer-term view. For MU, for its citizens, the two coming years, 2016-17, are the decisive time to act. Thank you to Bruegel for your welcome.